You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then talk about being self-interested. Our God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are so good to us and that you show up and oftentimes um, our hearts have to be corralled and pulled toward you, uh, Lord, because our hearts are prone to wander. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, we would run the race that is set before us and that we would keep our eyes fixed upon you, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I can't believe that we're nearing the end of Hebrews. We're going to finish it up by the end of the month. June 30th will be uh, our last uh, class. And it's been going on for a long time. And I I know that we've we've been in it over a year, I think. Uh, Is that right? Who knows? I know we've taken breaks along the way to, to get guests in and, and to do various and sundry other things. Uh, but th- this Hebrews has been a real blessing to me, and I hope it's been to you. And, um, and I hope that uh, even years down the road, you can look back uh, on the book of Hebrews and you can remember what we've been talking about here and even take advantage of the recording and, uh, and think, ah, uh, how, how great a time that was in God's word here in Hebrews. Well, I don't know how far we're going to get today as we get to the last chapter, but I do promise we're going to finish on June 30th. And in fact, we have an extra wiggle week built in, so uh, we will get finished with all of it. But I just want to begin with chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. And if you remember, uh, the author has been talking about the race that is set before us and the Christian life being a race much like that of a marathon in the days of old or even today and that the race that is set before us is one of God's choosing and often not our own. Uh, I don't know if you ever, uh, how long it took you to realize that you are not the master of your own destiny uh, in your life uh, but that um, but that, in fact, uh, God places you where he's placed you. And often, uh, the race that is set before us is one of agony. It's one of trial. It's one of temptation. And we think of these trials and temptations of, of an obstacle that we have to go through or get around to get where we're going. But, in fact, the author of Hebrews says is that these trials and these temptations and these obstacles are actually those things that God uses, uses us to make us who we are. It's not that we, we are who we are in spite of those things, but in fact we are who we are because of those things. And so he talks about the theological implications of the race that is set before us, but now in chapter 13 he gets incredibly practical. And this is not the end of the letter where the author says, well, while I have you, let me run through a laundry list of things that I want you to do. But in fact, the author is now stopping and saying, here's what the race looks like. Here's what it looks like to persevere. Here's what it looks like to endure. And so we pick it up in 13 verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, 
The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's just start here. Let brotherly love continue, because that's really what the thing that marks out the Christian body, and we spent a good bit of time talking about it the last time we were here, is what should a Christian body be marked out as? Now, in the book of Acts, we see that the others who were outside of the church, the unbelievers, were provoked to jealousy. Why were unbelievers provoked to jealousy? They were going around and saying, see how they love one another that the Christian church was marked by the great love that they had for one another. And so the author is saying that this brotherly love must continue. And it's, it is a brotherly love. It's, it's a familial love. It's not a, a love that we share. I mean, the greatest worship event that I've ever been to is at Bryant-Denny Stadium on a Saturday. I've never felt such cohesion in my life. 100,000 people singularly focused on an object made out of pigskin. Right? Uh, and, and there is a sense of, of that kinship and that camaraderie. And it even extends beyond the Saturday afternoons. And this applies to Auburn as well. I'm not trying to single out Alabama for something that is pretty universal when it comes to the SEC. Uh, but when you're walking through the airport uh, in some far-flung city and you see somebody in an Alabama shirt or an, or an Auburn hat, you involuntarily yell out, Roll Tide or War Eagle. And what do they say back? The same thing. They, they, they respond back that you have an immediate connection. And that's college football. Right? That, that's, that's, that's college football. And you notice that those types of shout-outs begin to wane depending on how, uh, how your team is doing. And uh, lest uh, Alabama fans get too excited, uh, remember Mike Shula. <laughs> uh, right? Just remember history. Anyway, uh, but, but the camaraderie that we feel uh, when it comes to SEC football is nothing compared to the kinship that we feel when it comes to the people of God. That you really are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the same way that you don't get to pick your own family, you don't get to pick your godly siblings either. You don't get to pick uh, who your brothers and sisters are in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we try desperately to do that. And this is one of the great problems that, that we face today that the early church never really encountered. And that is, uh, so for instance, in the Corinthian church, when Paul was saying, cast out this person, have nothing to do with them, if you were a Christian and you were thrown out of the fellowship of the church, there was a great incentive for you to reconcile, for you to amend your life and to get back into the life of the church. Why? That was the only church in town. It wasn't as if you got kicked out of the Corinthian church of the Advent and then you said, well, I'm going to go to independent Corinthian church or I'm going to go to uh, First Baptist Church of Corinth or I'm going to go do all of this. That There actually was an incentive uh, to living peaceably and to identifying that we're a family and we need to work this out together. And so how we care for one another is of paramount importance when it comes to the Christian life, that you're brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you're brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, if God has adopted you as his children, 
through the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace, then that means that you actually are able to enjoy a deeper level of intimacy with your Christian brothers and sisters than oftentimes you can with people who you're actually blood-related to. Have you ever felt that? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the most painful things that you're going to experience is interacting with family members, uh, a brother, a sister, a parent, maybe even a husband or a wife, who are not believers, and you can feel the glass ceiling in that relationship. That there's a barrier between the two of you because your relationship can only go so far. Because you're unable to share the most important thing in your life with the other person. So much so that I was talking to a believer that I'm related to. And I asked them, and I said, you know, I know that you love the Lord, but I noticed that you really don't go to church anymore, that, that, that you seem to have fallen away, much like what the author of Hebrews is saying to the Hebrew Christians. And they looked at me square in the eye, and with great sadness they said, because I know that if I were to pursue my relationship with the Lord, it would mean the end of my marriage. This is the reality of things. And this is exactly what the Hebrews are up against. But the author of Hebrews is saying, let this brotherly love continue. Seek out the fellowship of the church. Uh, Seek out the love of your brothers and sisters. And you in turn should also love on them. And let this continue. Don't let it be interrupted by the trials and tribulations that are thrown in you in front of you in this race of life. And do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It's very easy for us to show hospitality to people that we love. But the author of Hebrews is saying, what about the stranger? And this is, of course, hospitality when it comes to the home, but I think what the author of Hebrews is really getting at is the hospitality that is shown in the life of the church. The stranger that shows up at the Advent on a Sunday morning, do they experience hospitality? Now this word hospitality is from the same word from which we get the word hospital. Uh, And it's a hospital is some place where someone is cared for and those who are broken are put back together that they experience healing in their lives. I'm a part of a group that is called the Order of St. John, and they're often abbreviated as the Hospitallers. Now, the Order of St. John was an ancient crusading order that actually had hospitals set up along uh, the roads uh, throughout Europe all the way up to Jerusalem. And they were hospitals, but they weren't there for people who said, hey, I'm sick. But they were places where strangers could come in on their way from Jerusalem or returning back who were on pilgrimage to stop and stay and to be cared for. I need a place to stay. I need a place to belong. I need shelter over my head. And in the same way, the church should be just that, a place where people can be healed, a place where people can rest. Now, no offense, uh, I see someone here uh, who is an ER doctor. We're not talking about hospitals in terms of emergency rooms where they say, sit there and we'll call you when you're ready, when we're ready. Right? That, that's not the experience that the author of Hebrews is talking about. This is, not, uh, this is not anything like that. This is, we're so glad we're, you're here. How can we care for you? And this is the mark of love that the church is expected to demonstrate to the world.
And so when we do have strangers that come into our midst here at the Advent, do they experience the hospitality that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ? And this cannot be manufactured. I was in a church one time where we had hospitality groups. I didn't work. You can't create that. Uh, It's something that comes about spiritually. Now, I do think that we have the added benefit of being in a place culturally where hospitality is a really big deal. But I wonder if we have the hospitality to strangers that the author of Hebrews talks about. When we see somebody across Klingman Commons that we know but we've never seen at the Advent, we often will make a beeline over to them and say, we're so glad that you're here. And that's right, we ought to do that. But what happens when we look across the room and we see someone and we think, I have no idea who that is. And maybe they don't quite fit in. Are we offering the same hospitality to them and saying, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Because this is what is supposed to mark the church out. And in fact, is the mark of a church that is in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing that, it may be that you've actually entertained angels unawares. And I have to believe that the author of Hebrews is pointing back to Genesis 18, where Abraham himself entertained angels unaware. And so this love, this hospitality, should mark the Christian life, the race that is set before us. But it's not about simply receiving in a passive manner, It's also being proactive because in verse 3, excuse me, sorry, this dust, we're going to do something about it, is driving me bonkers. Remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. What does it mean to remember those who are in prison? It doesn't simply mean to pray for them. It does mean that. Uh, But the idea of remembering here actually says you should feel exactly what it feels like in prison. And so if a brother or sister is in prison, regardless of the reason why they're in prison, you should feel as if you too are in prison. Uh, The closest thing that I've experienced to this is to seeing people who have identical twins Uh, If you're an identical twin, you could speak to this. I'd welcome that. Uh, But I've talked to identical twins before, and they said it's amazing how they are able to experience what the other one is going through in a very real and tangible manner. Try as they may not to. They simply cannot help it. And that's the kind of remembering that the author of Hebrews is talking about when it comes to people who are in prison or the struggles that we have, generally speaking. But typically what happens in the church is that our remembering only extends so far as to pray for them. And we may speak of them and say, oh, you know, Bill, uh, you know, Bill's going through this or that. It, uh, it may be a divorce or whatever it is, and we need to remember Bill. Uh, but what the author of Hebrews is saying is that you ought to feel the excruciating pain that Bill is going through and call Bill up and say, Bill, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this with you. I see that you're struggling in the race, and I'm going to come alongside you and help you along. Because you also are in the body. We're going to get to this in 1 Corinthians, because this is one of those words that the Bible uses to talk about uh, the people of God, the body of Christ. That we're all interconnected, and we belong to one another, and no one can say, well, 
You're just the pinky toe. I, I found this out. I read my dismemberment policy. Do you have a dismemberment policy? I'm sure that you, you do. If, you, if you're employed by uh, a company, you probably have a dismemberment policy where in the line of duty, who knows how this is going to work out at the advent, although it seems to be getting more likely. Uh, uh, each part of the body is assigned a certain dollar amount. And so if I lose my little toe, I'm probably not going to see a lot out of it. If I lose my big toe, though, that's pretty important because I need it for balance, so I'm going to see a little bit more money. And then, of course, when it comes to arms and legs, uh, wherein if you lose your head, you get a lot more. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that you actually aren't able to say that. Uh, because, in fact, uh, those parts of the body that you think are insignificant and unimportant uh, are some of the most important parts of your body. That can you really imagine yourself living without? And so you're all in it together, and you're all working together, and you're all interconnected. And so you need to remember with them and experience as if you are experiencing it yourself because you're also in the body. And so these first three verses talk about the demonstration of love within the body of Christ and what this is supposed to look like. Let brotherly love continue. But then the author of Hebrews uh, gets uh, beyond the body and gets into the wider world and the witness to it beyond just loving one another. When he says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And adulterous. Well, let's stop here for a minute uh, because the author of Hebrews is obviously bringing this up because it's an issue in the world in which the Hebrews are living in. We don't know where the Hebrews are, by the way. We don't know where they live. And we know that they live in the Mediterranean world somewhere. We know that they're Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we don't know the context in which they live. But it's clear that the context in which they live does not hold marriage in a very high esteem. And that sexually immoral here is talking about sexual immorality outside of marriage and the adultery is talking about sexual immorality within marriage. Now our prayer book actually echoes this in the marriage service when it says that, that holy matrimony was established by God in creation and commands that all people honor it. Right? It doesn't say it doesn't say Christian, and this might be controversial for some of you, but it doesn't say Christian marriage is, marriage is a Christian sacrament and is to be held in high esteem within the life of the church. But it says what? It was established by God in creation and therefore it is to be esteemed by all people. Right? This is why we don't say only Christians can get married but somebody who lives in India cannot. Right? This is something that was established by God in creation. It's an ordinance of creation. And God created it with very specific purposes, which it seems here and throughout the entirety of time that the culture tends to rebel against and say, I don't like that idea of marriage. And yet there's no getting around it. Uh, I remember when, uh, talk, when I was ordained in the Diocese of South Carolina, I had to sign what was called Revised Form A. And revised form A was basically a code of sexual ethics that I would not only agree to abide by, but I agreed to teach within the life of my ministry. And um, 
and it's a pretty long document, and it's fairly intricate. And so I asked Bishop Sam, and I said, well, can you boil it down in one sentence for me? And he said, yes, fire belongs in the fireplace. That's it. <laughs> right. uh, that's, uh, that's it. When fire gets out of the fireplace, that's where trouble starts immediately uh, in the life of the world. Because it's not just troublesome uh, for the church, but it's troublesome for the world. And now we live in a day and age, which I think these words are especially true, but for a different reason. Uh, and that is, is that marriage and sex have been completely divorced from one another in our culture, and not necessarily in a licentious way, uh, but that those two things actually have nothing to do with one another. I think it's really interesting. I, I, I don't often listen to the radio now, at least anything that plays top 40 music. But uh, you may have remembered a couple years ago I did a class on this where I tracked music from the 60s up until today. And music really is an indicator of what's going on in the culture around you. What are they singing about? And I don't know if you've noticed, nobody sings about love anymore. Nobody sings about marriage. Nobody sings about the longing of, this is the one who I want to be my wife. This is the one who I want to be my husband. And in fact, it was, I was listening to music from the 80s, and I was kind of scandalized to how graphic it was sexually. Actually, with very few genres today, top 40 music doesn't talk about sex at all. It's just simply not on the radar screen. And the rates of sex, uh, I hope you know how comfortable I feel talking about this. The rates of sexual activity amongst younger generations has plummeted, which in some ways is a good thing, right? That more people would self, oh, self-identify, that would identify themselves as, as virgins but that's not because of moral reasons, but that's because they're growing up in a culture in which they have no idea how to connect with somebody in any way. And so to connect with them sexually, actually for them, on the one hand, is not that big a deal, but on the other hand, they really don't know how. I mean, it's, it's pretty uh, remarkable uh, to me, uh, to think about that, because in previous generations, uh, most people were trying as desperately as they could to connect with somebody sexually. And now it's just not happening, which ultimately leads to the fact that nobody's getting married anymore. Now, the Advent is a little bit of an exception to that, but I've been watching the statistics in our own denomination and finding that the, the number of marriages that are taking place within the life of our denomination has just plummeted. It's actually gone down by 60%. Did you know that? In the past 10 years, we've, only done, we, we've lost 60% of the numbers of weddings that we used to do. And this is in the age of our denomination where we've, quote, thrown open the doors of marriage to anybody. But in fact, the opposite has happened. We don't have more people getting married in the life of the church. We have fewer and fewer. And I think because the church is primarily responsible for failing to teach what marriage is and what it's all about. I'm not going to go into that now because I've done plenty of teaching on that in the past and I would commend that to you. But here the author of Hebrews is saying is that the church needs to make sure 
that the world understands what marriage is and that it's held in honor among all. And the moment that the church, much less the world, uh, because that's what we're dealing with right now is the church is taking its cues from the world. And it's interesting to me that often when I talk to my friends within the life of our denomination, they say, but if we do this, then this will happen. Namely, no one in the world will want to get married in our churches or come to our churches. And I'll say, we are doing what you're doing, and that's exactly what's happening. And so it's not going to hurt you to go in the opposite direction, even for practical reasons, to actually to be able to articulate and say, well, actually what the Bible teaches is that marriage is between a man and a woman for the entirety of their lives, and that fire belongs in the fireplace, uh, which actually uh, saves people from a lot of heartache and grief. I mean, one of the things that, that I uh, used to deal with, uh, but is no longer the case, I used to deal with people who would come to me for premarital counseling and say, they'd, come, they'd say, hey, can I meet with you by yourself without my future spouse? And I always knew what it was going to be about. And they would say, I don't know how to talk about my sexual past with my spouse because... I've got baggage and I'm bringing it into the relationship. How do I deal with that? And now I actually have uh, the opposite, which is I don't really know how to connect sexually with my spouse. So what do I do about that? And in both instances, you see how that's, that's a result of the culture. Two different cultures one that used to exist and, and one that exists now. And the church, for some reason, has been so sheepish uh, to say, you know, actually, sex is a wonderful gift from God uh, that ought to be made manifest in the relationship between uh, a husband uh, and a wife. And if you've not ever listened, uh, Tim Keller did a series on marriage years ago. Uh, but the best one that they did was they did uh, one where he tag-teamed it with his wife, Kathy. And it's a shorter, more condensed teaching, but to have Kathy's voice in there is really great. And they actually spend a lot of time talking about this dynamic of marriage, of sexual intimacy. Uh, and as is proof to me right now, as, as uncomfortable as I am talking about all of this, obviously the author of Hebrews has no problem talking about it 2,000 years ago. So it's to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed should be undefiled, for God will eventually judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. These are issues that, uh, that have the potential to absolutely wreck lives. And that's the thing about sexual sin, is it's not just you, it's not just your choice. It's, it's actually uh, implicates uh, at least one other person, if not multiple people. I mean, that's one of the things that is so insidious about adultery is that when you're committing adultery, um, you're actually behaving as if somebody is dead. And so it's not just adultery, but you're actually committing spiritual murder because if you're having a sexual uh, affair with another person, it means you're behaving as if their spouse is dead. Uh, and it's not just... Uh, and it's not just that, it's, it's kids involved, it's, it's all kind of stuff. And uh, the reason why I think Hebrews is talking about it is because it's never just sex. It's never just sex. It's something much deeper than that. And this is why, uh, and one of the few places where 
there is a witness uh, as to how God uh, planned this uh, in creation. It's in the life of the church. Uh, that, that's where it belongs. And Hebrews also reminds us that this is going to make you really unpopular in your culture. I mean, right now, uh, I'm, now I'm treading into to, to some deep waters. Um, but uh, even right now, uh, as uh, we're in the midst of uh, the conversation, which is pretty much over in, uh, in our culture, uh, over human sexuality, and now is morphing into transgenderism and, and all of that kind of stuff, the church really has not found a voice in any of that. And I think a lot of that is because we're afraid uh, to talk about it. And yet the Bible gives us all the tools that we need to engage in those conversations about people being created in the image of God. And that being male and female is not something that is to be seen as toxic or something that should be eschewed, but actually maleness and femaleness shows us what God is like. Right? In the beginning, God created the male and female, both created in the image of God, which means a man in and of himself is not able to fully represent who God is, and a woman in and of herself is not able to represent God who he is, which is why marriage is the closest thing that we have on earth to show us what God is like. And it's because you have a man and a woman in that marriage. And anything less is deficient. It doesn't mean that they're lesser human beings, that they're not created in the image of God, but it's not marriage as God defined it. That and the issue uh, that I was talking with someone the other day, they asked uh, a couple years ago, somebody, well, not somebody, a number of people frantically called the church and said uh, there is a rainbow flag flying from the front steps of the Advent. And for those of you that have been at the Advent long enough, you know we have a history with flags. And... um, and I, I ran outside thinking somebody has hoisted the flag without me knowing, and there was nothing out there. And uh, so I ended up getting online, and Yellowhammer News had photoshopped a rainbow flag on the front of our building uh, because the Episcopal Diocese of Alabama had said that uh, same-sex marriage is now allowed uh, within the life of the diocese. And I did call uh, Yellowhammer News and I said, hey, I don't know how to tell you this, but you, you found the one Episcopal church in the diocese who's not going to do that, uh, and you put a flag on our building. So if you could take that down, that would be great. Uh, and they did that for us. But um, uh, all that to say is that uh, there are lots of symbols in our culture, and even this month is, uh, is Gay Pride Month, uh, in a conversation I had with a friend who is same-sex attracted, who was asking, is the Advent going to do anything for Pride Month? And I said, well, no. And I said, human sexuality aside, um, we ought not to boast in anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. Anytime the word pride comes in, whether it's gay pride, whether it's southern pride, whether it's Alabama pride, uh, whatever it is, is quite frankly damnable. Uh, The only pride that we ought to demonstrate, uh, actually no pride at all, there's no space for it, Uh, but what we ought to say is if we're going to boast, we boast in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we say, I thank God that my identity is in Him. Right? I mean, that's what happens. God gives you a new name. Now, of course, we are who we are, and we are who God made us, but those things don't define us. What is your identity? I'm a child of God adopted by him through grace. That's who I am. 
And I want to know nothing amongst you except Christ and him crucified. All right, so anyway, the author of Hebrews 2,000 years ago is saying all of this. But also I do want to say this, that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Do you notice what that says? Who does the judging at the end of the day? God. We are not the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department. Right? That, that's not our job. Now, it doesn't mean that we roll over and compromise. That's not what it means at all. But what it does mean is that at the end of the day, nobody's going to get away with anything. I mean, I've told the story before of being down at the beach uh, with our girls, and we got this gigantic, stupid beach ball. And by gigantic, I mean, it was, it was enormous. Even I had a hard time handling it, but they got it at the store, and Lauren caved, and that's, I mean, I caved too. Uh, and, and so that it went, anyway, so it shows up. Well, of course, our girls just started swimming around and left it in the pool, and uh, we went home that night, and uh, back to the, where we were staying, and I said, well, where's the giant beach ball? And they said, oh, we left it at the pool. Well, the next day, there were some boys playing with this giant beach ball in the pool, and the girls went over and said, can we have our beach ball back? And they said, no, it's ours. And so then they came to me, and, um, and I went over, and the father started walking up as I walked up, and I said, hey, y'all, I'm so sorry. I know you're having a lot of fun with the beach ball, and you're welcome to play with it all day long, but, but that really is ours, and, and, and we purchased it yesterday. And the father said, no, it's ours. And I said, oh, really? I said, where'd you get it? He goes, at a store. It's like, where? He's like, yeah, d- down the road. And I walked away. And our oldest Lily said, Daddy, that man was lying to us. And I said, that very well may be, but that's not for us to judge. And she looked at me and she said, well, what about our ball? And I looked at her, and Lily at this point was maybe six years old. And I said, Lily, there's going to come a day where God is going to judge each and every single one of us, and that man and those boys will just burn in hell. Nobody gets away with anything uh, at, at, at the end of the day. Uh, and in fact, I would point back to the preceding verses, is that what do we do with people who find themselves fallen in adultery and people who practice sexual immorality outside of marriage? What does love look like to them? Because it's not enough, let's talk about same-sex attracted people while we're at it. It's not enough to say to somebody, Oh, well, the Bible says this, and therefore you should live like this. God calls us to enter into that situation and actually come alongside our brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attraction and to help them in what is a very difficult race of life and to encourage them on and to spur them on. And not just people who are same-sex attracted, but people who are single, not by choice, why aren't we inviting them to our, why are we not inviting them to our homes for Thanksgiving? Or even just a Thursday night? Why are we not incorporating them into the life of the body? And the truth of the matter is, is because we're all self-interested. You know, Father's Day is the great day of self-interest. Lauren asked me last night, she said, well, You know we're going to have to do something with my family, meeting Lauren's family, uh, tomorrow for Father's Day. And she said, so what do you want to to do? And I said, I want to be left out. (laughs) And dads, you, you all know it. What do you want for Father's Day? I want to be left alone. 
I have no plans. I just don't want you to be a part of them. And how many of us, man or woman, just blow our top when we find our agenda and our plans infringed upon? Well, that's what Hebrews is talking about here. And we haven't even gotten to money, uh, which is even worse than what we've been talking about. Uh, and we will talk about that uh, next week. But go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.